Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This July 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled Suicide Prevention is Everyone's Business. Know what you can do to save a life. Our guest presenters are Sarah Kolbeck, Assistant Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Patty Slatter, Board President, National Alliance on Mental Illness, Rock County Chapter, and a lived experience individual of over 20 years. They're joined by Dr. Jennifer Hernandez-Meyer, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here first is Patty Slatter. I have survived 12 suicide attempts, 50 hospitalizations, over two decades of struggling with mental health challenges. My journey started in high school, started really young. I didn't even know what mental illness was. Um, nobody talked about mental illness. It dated back from the 1990s till April 2019 to currently still struggling at times. Uh, mental illness and suicide ideation, sometimes it, there's no end, it continues. There's no, I'm cured. That's why I continue to share my story. So back in high school, I couldn't name what I was feeling. I don't know if any of you guys can relate to that where you just feel off, but you don't know what is going on. And back in the 90s, when I was going through high school, nobody talked about it. Nobody talked about mental health, nobody talked about suicide, so how could you even name it when nobody was talking about it? So I filled out a survey in history class. I just remember sitting in history class and you got a piece of paper and you filled it out and you turned it into the teacher. And next thing I know, somebody said they sent a letter home to my parents and I screened positive for suicide. My parents threw the letter away and it had a whole list of doctors and counselors for me to go see. I grew up with seven brothers and sisters, a dad that traveled, and a Catholic family that you don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about what's going on in our family. We were in sports. Um, that's how we tracked. How do you track eight kids? You put them in sports and you keep them busy. And so that's what we did. I never even knew mom and dad got the letter, so nobody mentioned it to me. And so I fell into a trap called stay busy. If I stay busy, I don't have to deal with it. If I go from one sport to the next, I don't have to deal with what I'm feeling on the inside. If I stay busy, I don't have to go home and I don't have to think. And honestly, I still fall into that trap today. If I stay busy and I keep going, I don't have to think about it. And so that was the first trap that I fell into. I would go from sport to sport to sport. And then in the summertime, when you're not in school, I was a water skier with a local water ski show team. Um, our whole family was, so I was still busy in sports over the summer. So I still didn't have to think about it. But I still didn't like what I was feeling on the inside. So I graduated with my classmates. 
and I went on to college. Guess what? I thought college was going to fix me. <laughs> I was always looking for that fix. So now I went on to college, and college was going to fix me. So I remember I was in college, um, still sad, still depressed. I was in an English class, and we were doing journaling. And the teacher um, was reading my journaling, and she said, you need to go see somebody. But she never told me how. She never told me where to go. She just said, you need to go see somebody. I didn't. I didn't know what to do, and I withdrew from college. Um, I had a tough roommate. It wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I was sad, I was depressed, so I withdrew from college at the time. My dad was very angry with me, and I got a full-time job in retail. I found what I love to do. I got a job in retail. I'm a people person on the outside, and I found my niche, and I loved retail. I could go to work, I could be a different person until I went home. The depression and the hard times and the long nights would hit me when I went home. So I felt like I was two different people. And that worked for a while until my 21st birthday, my whole world changed. My 21st birthday, I was raped by somebody close to me. A member of my family raped me and my whole world turned upside down. Um, not only did that happen, the flashbacks started to happen on why I didn't want to go home when I was in high school and why I was having all the thoughts of not wanting to go home. And so I never told anybody what happened. I kind of buried it. I fell into going to work. Work was my escape. That's what, how I was going to deal with it. I still was in that staying busy phase. So I would go to work and then I'd go drinking all night. That's how I was going to manage it. And I was still successful at work. I was still capable, I was still winning awards, I was still getting raises, until my boss called me into her office one day, and she said, Patty, what the heck is going on? And I said, what do you mean? My work performance is fine. And she said, I'm not talking about your work, I'm talking about personal, and I lost it. This was probably about 10 months after the rape. I had never told anybody what happened, and I lost it, and I told her everything. And she took out a phone book and she called the counselor's office and she made an appointment. And I was very stubborn. I, if you ask my friends, I'm a little stubborn. And so I thought, you can make the appointment, but I don't have to go. Now remember that all these other people said that they were gonna help me, but she made the appointment during working hours. And my coworker that is a friend of mine took me to that counseling appointment so that I had to go. So that's how I went to my first counseling appointment. That's how I got help. When I walked into that counseling appointment, I still didn't understand what mental illness was or depression. And she said, I think you need medication. And I said, I don't want medication. She said, I think you're suicidal and I think you need more help. And I said, I'm not ready for that. Just tell me what I need to do. I'm not ready to see a psychiatrist. But she gave me her business card with her number. And she said, when you want to end your life, I want you to give me a call. So I took her business card. But I'm going to pause right there in my story to say that now the work that I do with NAMI Rock County is we realize that one number is not enough. So we made cards with the Tex Hope Line and the Suicide Prevention Line, along with the suicide signs and symptoms on the back. Because if you call a friend and they're busy, if you call one number and they don't answer, you gotta call another number. One number was not enough. 
I did realize that. About a month after that, the next day I was going to see my brother that had done what he did to me, and I couldn't do it, and I planned a suicide attempt. But I paused. I have a big faith, and I think God stopped me. I picked up her card right before I went to attempt, and I called her. And she said, Patty, you need to hang on, and I'm going to call the police. And she did. She called the police for a welfare check. She called me back, which felt like hours. When you're in that sort of a crisis, it doesn't feel like 30 seconds or a minute. It feels like 10, 20 minutes. They knocked on the door, and they said, we're here to help you. But you know what was going through my mind? I'm going to jail. This is awful. I'm in so much trouble. Those are the thoughts that's going through my mind when I was in that crisis. And today I work with law enforcement to say, how can we change that? How can we make that better? And I work very, very closely with the police department in Rock County to break that stigma a little bit to make it easier because those are the thoughts that were going through my mind and I know that's what goes through others. So they took me to crisis and I just remember sitting in a dark hallway all alone and they came out to me and they said, what do you wanna do? And I said, I don't know, I've never done this before. I mean, why do you ask somebody what do they wanna do? I have no idea, you tell me what we're gonna do because I don't have a clue. And so I woke up in a psychiatric locked unit and that was the start of my revolving door stay. For the next two decades, I would be in and out of psychiatric hospitals with a lot of medication changes, with a lot of suicide attempts. This would be my life for the next two decades. But being hospitalized all the time was really hard on me because I was judged. I would walk into the emergency room and I would see doctors and nurses' eyes rolls. And so we work with a lot of the ERs to say what we need to stop doing. And that's a lot of the work that I do today. I heard a nurse say, I don't want her, you take her, she's here for attention. I had a psychiatric nurse say, this is gonna be your life, you need to accept this. That's not okay. You know, I had a pastor say you should have completed your suicide. You know, these comments hurt. These comments stick. A lot of those comments stuck with me for 20 years. And I thought, why try if this is gonna be my life? And that fed my depression and fed my suicide attempts for a long time. So we really gotta be careful with our language and our comments about what people say and do. When I let people know what happened to me and what I was struggling with, it was hard for them and it led me to feeling rejected and made my struggle worse. I lost many friends and family over the 20 years due to my actions and my illness. I am just now gaining back a lot of friends and family, and I don't have all my family supporting me yet. Some of my diagnoses have hindered me from getting treatment. Sometimes they hear the word borderline personality disorder, and some counselors don't want to treat that and I really encourage them to not let those diagnoses stop that treatment because that's a judgment and you treat the patient and that's it. And really, really encourage that we use in lived experience more to say that's not okay. You know, that really hinders treatment. I did find a counselor that I trusted and she challenged me to be honest with her, be honest with friends, be honest with everybody. And I signed a release for her to talk to my friends because sometimes it was really hard for me when I was struggling to say I'm struggling or to call a friend. So when I signed the release, she could talk to them and I didn't have to. And that was huge for me and for her. 
And sometimes, you know, you think of somebody when you sit down with a friend and they don't tell you they're struggling or I'm suicidal right away at the beginning of the conversation. You might get frustrated. Why won't they just say it? And sometimes counselors get frustrated. We're 40 minutes into the session and then they break it. But it's really, really hard to get those words out. Sometimes it takes that long to build up the strength to say those words. Sometimes I tell people, put it in writing if it's easier to put it in writing, but to get those words out because those are hard words to say. Just like if somebody's calling crisis, that phone is a two-ton weight when you're calling crisis. You know, it's really, really hard. And it was hard for me. When I did find a counselor that I trusted, she encouraged me to start DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. So I did do that, but I did do it at first just to get out of the house. I hated it because it was hard, but it is the most evidence-based treatment for people with borderline personality disorder and suicide ideation because it switches things in your brain. It gives you tools that you gotta practice. And I think what really made the difference for me was when she started challenging me to teach the sessions in group. She said, Patty, you're gonna teach next week and I want you to teach this skill. And then when people started asking me the next week, Patty, did this skill work for you? And I had to give feedback to my peers, that was huge for me because I really had to work at those skills. That was a big turning point in my life. But six years ago was my last suicide attempt. I had just got back from a missions trip and I was doing really, really well, but I planned a suicide attempt. I didn't know when I was gonna do it until I woke up that morning and I crashed my car into a tree. I totaled out my car. I cracked a few ribs, but I remember when the paramedics got there, they said, what happened? And I just said to them, I need help. I did this on purpose. And they said, we're gonna get you help. They were the most kind paramedics that I've ever encountered. And they got me to the hospital. None of the nurses judged me. None of the nurses did what they've done 20 years prior to that. They got me treatment to where I needed to go. And you know what? They've seen less of me because of that kindness and how they treated me then than they did 20 years ago when they judged and eye-rolled and made comments behind my back that they thought I wasn't curing. Sadly, that was not my last hospitalization. I went back to school. I was going to school at the time. And October came around, and I thought my meds were working, and I just, I needed help again. So I called and I got inpatient again, and this time I was in for three weeks, and um, which is unusual, but I was passing out, and I passed out seven times during this hospital stay. This was a life-changing hospitalization for me. I was diagnosed with a physical illness called POTS, postal orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So basically when I stand, my blood pressure drops and my heart races and I can pass out at any time. And they told me your psych meds are making it worse and you need to stay stress-free and um, be on less psych meds. And during that hospital stay, I realized that a lot of people in group were talking about how their friends don't get it. And that was life-changing for me because I thought, you know what, you're right. My friends don't get it, and I'm glad they don't get it. Because if they don't get it, that means they haven't struggled this bad, and that's okay. That I'm gonna use my life mission to educate them on signs and symptoms and suicide. 
I'm doing this wrong, and I'm gonna call my friends more, I'm gonna do things more, I'm gonna talk to them about their life more, and I made a switch in my whole life when I got that diagnosis, because it did turn my life upside down. I realized that I couldn't rely on my meds anymore, I couldn't rely on the hospitals to fix me anymore, I couldn't rely on anything to fix me but me, and I had to rely on my diet, I had to rely on the few meds that I could, but I had to rely on the coping skills. I had to rely on everything that I had to do. And I really needed to learn. I had to ask for help when I really needed it. And I started volunteering for NAMI. I started getting involved. I started realizing just three short years ago is when I started telling my story. But this last year has probably been the hardest year of my life. So I've been speaking for about three years and I went more than three years without a hospitalization. But within the last year, I've lost my dad, and I just went through the first Christmas without my dad. That's really, really hard when you go through that first year without your dad. And so January came, and I, I wanted to die. And I thought, Patty, you do this as a living, you public speak. So I called for help. And you know, that was the hardest phone call I've ever had to make. But I sit up here today to say, life is hard, and you need to ask for help. So he asked, is the knowledge increasing with suicide with the news and everything? There's two parts to that question I have an answer to. One is there's too much sometimes with media attention on mental health and suicide. Sometimes you don't want too much attention because it's too sensationalized. And then also sometimes they use the wrong language when talking about suicide. So we're trying to educate with Mental Health America on what is the correct language when you're talking about suicide. So sometimes you will hear the news say commit suicide and the correct language is die by suicide. And that is to take out the judgment. It's not against the law to commit suicide. And so if we can get media to get behind that, we'd be going even farther. My question is regarding the stigma, especially with parents, friends, families. I want to know from you whether or not that changed at all. I think for some people, it's easier. For some people, it's still hard. So I think we're getting better. Does my family still talk about it? No. Do they come to any of my speaking engagements? No. So it just depends a lot on culture, but we're getting there. We're going to keep pushing. Great question. Presenting next, Sarah Kolbeck, Assistant Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. What I want to talk to you about today is suicide. I'm currently working with the state's Department of Health Services to sort of describe what the impact of suicide is in the state of Wisconsin and some of the best ways or evidence-based ways that are available to us to respond to suicide. One of the things that I want folks to think about and take away with them today is that suicide is a very complex issue. It is also a disease. It's a disease that we need to talk about like we talk about cancer, like we talk about HIV. When we talk about suicide as a disease, we take it out of this realm of being this scary thing that we can't prevent. When we talk about it as a disease, we can start to place it in the same sort of thinking that we think about things like cancer and HIV. We can start to understand the data around it. We can understand the trends. We can understand who's at highest risk. And that enables us to think about prevention. 
And so what I'm going to talk to you about today is some of the trends that we're seeing in Wisconsin and then talk a little bit about some of the evidence-based prevention strategies for suicide. So I will tell you the rate of suicide in the state of Wisconsin has been increasing over the last 15 to 16 years or so. When we look at the, the suicide rate in Wisconsin and when we look at rates, that's sort of a way of standardizing the numbers so that we can compare across different age groups and different populations. The suicide rate is, has steadily been increasing. The rate in 2016 was 14.6 per 100,000, which is a little bit higher than we see actually nationally. So this is a growing issue in the state. In terms of folks who are primarily affected by suicide, one of the surprising things that we've seen in the research that we've done is that it's older men, ages 85 and older, actually have the highest suicide rates in the state of Wisconsin, white older men, followed by men in middle years, which is men ages 45 to 54 roughly. And again, it's primarily white non-Hispanic males. However, emerging research is starting to show that these trends are changing a little bit. Suicide has primarily been understood to be a problem among white men. We're seeing the gap between men and women start to narrow, especially among younger folks, and in particular young women of color. We're seeing rates of suicide and suicide attempts increase in those different groups of folks. So although it primarily affects white men, we have to understand and we have to remember that other populations are also affected, including women, including folks of color. Folks who are LGBT have a higher risk of suicide. We see in Wisconsin that our American Indian population has disproportionately high rates of suicide as well. And so we have to be thinking about this holistically. We can't be thinking about this as just a problem that affects older white men. I think one of the reasons that suicide is highest among older white men is that they primarily utilize a firearm in their suicide. Firearms had a very high case fatality ratio, and so unfortunately the rates are higher in that population. Firearms are used in about half of the suicides in the state of Wisconsin. The next most prevalent means is hanging and then poisoning. And so we have a real issue with firearm suicide in the state of Wisconsin, more of an issue than we see across other parts of the country. And I don't know exactly why that is. We do have some policies that may make it a little bit easier for folks to access a firearm than it is in other states. We also have a culture around hunting here. The other issue that we see, especially with our older men, is we have a lot of veterans. About 17% of the folks who die by suicide in the state of Wisconsin are veterans, and we know that veterans know how to use a firearm, and so it's a big problem. We also know that suicide primarily is much higher, the rates are much higher in our rural counties. So actually the suicide rate in Milwaukee County is relatively low compared with other counties in the state. We see much higher rates in our rural counties and that's for a lot of reasons. There's less access to mental health resources in those counties. Folks are socially isolated. There's not a lot of opportunity sometimes for folks to interact with others and social connection is a protective factor against suicide. And so when you have those social connections and that social support, your risk is lower. If you don't have those social connections, the risk is a little bit higher. There's also issues with economics. If you've been hearing in the news lately that there's been more attention called to suicide among our farming population. That's actually something that I'm studying is the impact of climate change and crop loss and then economic loss and how that impacts suicide risk among agricultural workers in our farmer population. And so obviously those are occurring in rural areas. And again, veterans, folks who are hunting and have access to firearms as well. 
The other, I guess, piece that I want to really touch on is that suicide is just the tip of the iceberg. So when you think about an iceberg, you've got what's visible above the surface, and then you have this big chunk of ice that's below the surface that you can't see. But we really need to also be thinking about these kind of under the water, unseen aspects of suicide that include things like suicide attempts, suicide plans, and suicidal ideation. In terms of suicide attempts, we are really seeing really high rates in Wisconsin among our young females, ages 15 to 17. And these are suicide attempts. There's something called non-suicidal self-injury, where a person engages in self-injury but doesn't have suicidal intent. I'm actually talking about suicide attempts, where there's the intent to die. So we're seeing these higher rates in these, in these young women, which is terrifying for me as a parent because I have a 15-year-old daughter. It's really important to, as I said, be thinking about this holistically and start to think about how we can provide our young people with the support and the coping skills that they need that when they are in a crisis situation or they have a friend who's in a crisis situation that they know what to do. You know, one of the things that Patty said that really resonated with me is that it's really hard to say those words and it's hard to ask for help. One of the most powerful things that I learned as a researcher and just as a person in the community is that you don't need to have an MD or a PhD or a special degree to ask somebody, are you thinking about killing yourself? That's really an important question to ask. I think that we need to not be relying on people necessarily to ask for help if they're in a crisis or they're in a place where they can't. If you're concerned about somebody, ask the question directly. Are you thinking about killing yourself? And when you ask that question and you get an answer, you need to know what to do. It's our responsibility to do that. One of the things that I learned is that you can call a person's doctor if you're concerned about a person. Although that doctor can't give you information, you can give that doctor information and then that doctor can follow up. If there's one thing that I hope folks take away from this today, it's understanding that you have the power to help. You have the power if you see somebody that's in crisis to just ask that question. And I think that's it in terms of data. Some of the CDC's suicide prevention recommendations, a lot of these are kind of big policy systems environment level suicide prevention recommendations. If you're interested in suicide prevention, one of the things that I would suggest as an individual that you do is participate in a gatekeeper training. There's a great training out there that's called QPR, it's Question, Persuade, Refer. And that is a training that will help you sort of identify what suicide risk looks like. It will provide you with the tools that you need to ask that person the question, are you thinking about killing yourself? And then it will help you learn and understand how to get that person to help and refer that person to help. So Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee, which is a great suicide prevention coalition here in Milwaukee, offers that training for free. So if you're interested in, in taking that training, just go to the Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee website and you can find all kinds of information on the training. Some of the other suicide prevention strategies include things like increasing social connections. So making sure that folks have social connections, which is, you know, hanging out with friends or going to church or having social connections at work or school. And then changing the social norms around suicide and, and stigma, reducing stigma around suicide. I've been doing this research for a few years now and I still get looks from people, why would you want to do that? We have to talk about this or it's not going to get better. We have to understand this. So, you know, helping folks understand this is something that we talk about and it doesn't need to be kept in the shadows and this needs to be brought out into the open and helping to change those social norms is really important. That's something that all of you can do.
Any more questions out there? Has internet increased suicide attempts? I think it's affected it. I think it's more out there. Obviously, you can Google, how can I kill myself? And you can get an answer just like that. I would love to see someday where somebody Googles that, it throws an alert up there, and then it calls somebody to their house. But yes, I think there is links to that. Social media is kind of a blessing and a curse in that it enables folks to communicate, but it takes away some of the social connection. One of the things that we've seen interestingly with young people in Wisconsin is that alcohol use has actually gone down. Kids aren't going out to parties, but kids aren't going to parties. They're not hanging out together. Um, they're hanging out on their phones, they're texting, their Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all of these websites. And I think that cyberbullying is a huge problem among young people. It's easier to say something online than it is to say to a person's face. Folks are crueler to each other online, and I think that bullying piece definitely contributes to some of the risks that we see among younger people. I just want to thank everybody for asking us to be here tonight, and thank you for being here. This is a great turnout. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.